Access to medical and ambulance transport is important and often life-saving for rural communities with limited EMS and transport services. So, how do rural hospitals manage the challenge of limited ambulances in their service area? With consistent advocacy, strong EMS agency relationships, and a mutual focus on improving patient care. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to another episode of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is someone who is passionate about providing EMS services, uh, and, and specifically a lot of experience in rural communities, uh, and here even in Michigan, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, I've had an opportunity to get to know this uh, young man uh, over the course of the last, I would say, almost year now, uh, and it's proven to be a, a remarkable friendship and relationship, sharing some of the same frustrations and challenges uh, that his industry, ultimately our industry, is facing right now across uh, this country. That's right. We are talking with someone who has many years of experience serving patients through EMS care in communities both big and small. Our guest today is Robert Dion, Chief Executive Officer of Ultra EMS and you're out of Powell, Ohio. We're going to talk about some of the migration that you've had from Michigan to Ohio and some other things, which I really look forward to. And um, for the first time ever, I want to welcome you to Rural Health Rising. Welcome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate um, you extending the invitation. And I, I think it's um, a great thing that you guys are doing. And I look forward to just giving my perspective on the challenges that we face, um, you know, on the EMS side and the hospital side. Absolutely. So to start, Bob, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Ultra EMS. Sure. Um, I'm originally from uh, Salem, Massachusetts. I moved to uh, the Columbus, Ohio area back at the end of 2014. Um, my wife is originally from Westerville, Ohio, so um, we decided to move, um, you know, here and be close to her family. So uh, here I am um, in Ohio. Um, I've been uh, in the ambulance business now going on, gosh, 1996, so um, 26, 27 years now. Um, I started um, driving a wheelchair van way back when hmm. and um, then got into the EMS side, got my EMT. Um, I got my paramedic certification in 2001, and I kept that certification um, to about 2012. I got out of the business for a little bit and I let my paramedic certification go. Um, hindsight's 2020. I'm back in the paramedic program as we speak, um, getting my certification back. I'm currently an advanced EMT uh, within the state of Ohio. Um, I, this is my second stint of owning an ambulance company. Um, I owned North Shore Ambulance um, back uh, from 2003 to 2008. Uh, prior to that, I ran the business for the previous owners, um, and then when they were getting to, ready to retire, I purchased the, the company. Um, I had some challenges back um, then under North Shore as, um, you know, in Massachusetts, uh, you know, very um, uh, union-based state. So we were one of three companies in, um, one of three ambulance companies in Massachusetts to be unionized. Um, you know, we work very closely with the Teamsters and, you know, it, it 
for our industry, it was just very tough to keep up with the demands of, of the contract. So mm-hmm. I basically was forced to, um, to sell. So I sold the business to a much larger company. I went to work for them for a number of years, um, staying in the ambulance business. And then in 2011, I left. A friend of mine was a mayor of a, a community just outside of the city of Boston. So uh, I went to work for him as the HR director up until uh, we moved here. In 2017, I went to work for a company called uh, Beaumont Health, which was based uh, out of Michigan. Um, And I worked for their um, uh, EMS agency, Community EMS, and their management company, Paristar. So I was the chief operating officer for them. I managed um, several business units um, in about five or six states, probably altogether about seven business units, maybe 2,500 employees, 300 plus ambulances. Um, And then uh, in 2021, Beaumont Health decided to get out of the ambulance business um, Mm. and they ended up selling community EMS, um, Paristar, and I ended up getting laid off from my position. At the time, um, I either had one or two options. It was either just find another job or, you know, uh, try to start an ambulance company. Since I had... um, you know, prior ownership uh, experience, we decided to go that route. And um, we started with one ambulance in 2021. And um, today we have 25 employees and we've got um, eight ambulances. Mm. Uh, We service um, multiple health systems uh, in and around central Ohio. We provide service to hospice uh, care um, companies, um, you know, just a bunch of, uh, you know, local nursing homes. Uh, in the area. So um, growth for us has been pretty amazing over the past couple of years. It was a need for good quality ambulance companies in central Ohio. And, and here we are. You know, one of the things we're going to talk about is the challenges that you just uh, explained with what Beaumont faced, which is uh, the cost of doing business uh, in this particular service line, uh, specifically as it relates to owning and operating an ambulance service. It is challenging. The reimbursements, uh, the lack of uh, payers at times, you know, you're transporting individuals with no insurance. Uh, And so there's a lot of complexities involved. In fact, as you know, because the reason we linked up is I had considered uh, as a hospital starting my own ambulance service in order to get our patients appropriately where they needed to be in a timely manner. Uh, And unfortunately, upon review of all of those factors, cost, you know, the, the purchase of equipment, staffing, we're going to talk about those challenges, hair mix that we have, uh, just was cost prohibitive for the hospital to do it, uh, just to, just as a transport service. So uh, we're going to talk a little about those things today on our podcast, and I look forward to that. But before we get into uh, some of the weeds with this stuff, uh, Bobby, I, I want to know, um, and we ask this on, on every podcast of each guest, uh, and it's a simple question. It's called the why. We want to know what motivates you what gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do? In other words, what is your why? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, since the very beginning, uh, it's it's just caring for patients and knowing that you know each day um, when our staff comes in, um, they're doing the very best they can to um, you know to 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 care for the patients that we treat and transport mm-hmm. every day. And mm-hmm. for me, the why is, is, 
is that and the fact that I can, you know, give them the tools that they need to be successful providers uh, in the field um, and and provide the best possible patient care. And and that's been, you know, I've been in private EMS pretty, for my whole career. And I have to say that, um, you, you know, nothing has changed since day one of me taking my first patient in a wheelchair van to today, us probably doing a run at this very second. Um, it's, it's all about the patient. And I, 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 I care um, about the service that that we provide in the in the care that they get. Yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing why. Uh, it's been demonstrated throughout your entire career. So we look forward to vetting that out in the questions to come. So let's start with the state of EMS services and also non-emergent medical transport, because that's also a huge part of this issue. A lot of medical transport is done by EMS agencies, um, but it's not all considered emergent. Um, and I'll let you kind of define some of those terms for us and uh, help us use the right the right language to describe that. But what can you tell us about the history of EMS care a little bit and how we got here? Because the EMS shortage is not just a Michigan issue. It's not just an Ohio issue. It's a United States issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great question. And, you know, EMS as an industry is, believe it or not, it's fairly new. Um, you know, it's, it, it used to be years ago that, you know, uh, maybe even, maybe even a hundred years ago, it was run by funeral homes, you know, funeral homes, you know, would, would transport patients and, and, and then all of a sudden it started to evolve. I want to say the 1940s and fifties to more of your, um, you know, police, uh, and fire, um, and, and, and in some areas, it's still private EMS that is doing some of the 911. Um, but really, um, over the past, you know, 60, 70 years, it's been predominantly in certain areas, you know, uh, first police and then fire really took over, um, you know, I probably would say 40 or 50 years ago um, is when fire services really started taking over the EMS. Um and as far as like the difference between the two, emergency and non-emergency, um, you know, the emergency piece um, is one of those things where, you know, cities, townships, towns, you know, they, for the most part, you know, their fire department um, is handling those 911 calls. In Massachusetts, for instance, uh, it's different. It's predominantly private EMS that manages um, or has the contracts with these cities or towns. I under my old company, we had seven 911 contracts. When I sold, hmm. we sold those contracts to a company that had um, probably 22. So um, they serviced, uh, you know, from probably the New Hampshire, Massachusetts border past Boston south a little bit. So um, again, Massachusetts a little bit different. Ohio, uh, Michigan a little bit more um you know, a, a lot more, I should say, cities and township fire departments that do the EMS. Privates predominantly do the hospital-to-hospital, nursing home uh, work, um, that sort of thing. The non-emergency, some emergency, but but mostly non-emergency. In terms of a shortage when it comes to personnel for EMS agencies, what do you think has contributed most to that over the last, let's say, 15 years? I, I think it's... Um, People deciding to not go into the EMS side of things, more go into the fire, either go into the fire side or go into the nursing side. 
Mm-hmm. So I, what I think is happening is I think people aren't just going into the EMS field like they used to. Um, they're going into the fire side, which, yes, they're doing, you know, um, probably doing some, a lot of EMS stuff on the fire side. But when it comes to the private EMS side or the hospital-based side, um, you know, people, people are just deciding to go to nursing school. I mean, to be honest with you, a typical paramedic program can run between 12 and 24 months. Whereas if you go a little bit longer for nursing school, you're going to come out of school uh, a nurse and you're going to make more money working in the hospital. And I think that's the route that people are going in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know some um, educational institutions are doing bridge programs between um, nursing to paramedic, but there really isn't that much between paramedic to nursing. So Mm -hmm. I think people are just you know, bypassing the EMS side and just going right to uh, yeah. hospital side. Yeah, and that's be- becoming more and more of a growing problem. Right. Uh, you do not have a talent pipeline that mm-hmm. you can pull from, which means that the concern is, you know, where we talk about priorities. And, and when we talk about, um, you know, the lack of EMS care in rural communities, um, it, it not only impacts emergent response times, right? Um, but also the medical transport wait times for patients who are waiting in an ER that must be transferred. Um, And maybe they're stable at the moment, but they need to get out of that hospital. Uh, And so it's kind of a twofold problem. Number one, it's just, do we have enough ambulances to respond to the 911 calls that are keeping us, you know, very busy and hopping? And then how do we balance that with all of these transports that those community hospitals seem to have. Now, Bobby, it is understood that hospitals, rural hospitals, are going to have a disproportionate number of, let's say, transports and transfers compared to large tertiary centers simply because we lack all of the depth of resources that a bigger facility or hospital would have. So naturally, it's going to look disproportionate. So with that, can you talk to us a little bit about what the relationship is here between responding to emergencies like 911 and then the need, how you balance it, to get the patient out of hospitals to a higher level of care? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, JJ. And, you know, if I can add to the question before about the emergency side, fire departments, yeah. too, are struggling to are. get uh, EMS providers as well. So, um, you know, they're having to get creative with, you know, um, getting EMS providers in on the fire side as well. So it's 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 everywhere. It's it's rural. It's um, urban. Mm-hmm. It's fire based. It's, it's everywhere that we have that we have the shortage. And um, to answer to answer your question, um, I think on the emergency side, um, with those struggles that the fire departments and the townships are seeing here in Ohio, for instance, um, they opened up uh, Ohio Health, for instance, which is probably the largest healthcare system in Central Ohio, has opened up a bunch of uh, freestanding emergency rooms in and around the 270 belt of Columbus. 
And what's happening is years ago, you know, it used to be before these opened, um, you know, fire departments, privates, they would take these patients to um, directly into Columbus, directly to Riverside Methodist or Mount Carmel or OSU. Now they're taking the patients to these freestanding EDs and the patients end up sitting there for several hours, one, till a bed opens up at the main hospital and two, for transport. So, um, you know, we sometimes see uh, on our side that the hospitals, the, even the larger health systems have to wait um, to get those patients moved from, you know, the ED over to an inpatient bed or from ED to ED. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that on the, uh, on the emergency side of things. And same thing with the non-emergency side of things. Uh, Ohio Health, OSU, they have, uh, in this region anyway, and even, you know, when I was working at Beaumont, and, and managing some other uh, health systems. Um, you, you know, sometimes if a patient was, you know, at a rural or, or outside of a main city's hospital, it would take sometimes two to three, four, six, 10, 12 hours for them to get an ambulance to yeah. take a critical patient. Yeah. And MedFlight, you know, in the area would be utilized on an occasion, but, you know, they it got to the point where, you know, they had to say, listen, we can't take, you know, this patient, they have to wait for ground transport. So it's it's everywhere that's failing the pinch. Absolutely. Significant pinch that's happening. And uh, unfortunately, in rural communities like ours, uh, it's impacting patient care, uh, which has a significant impact on a lot of things, including but not limited to quality scores of hospitals, uh, you know, and, and, and then the obvious is the patient outcomes. Um, a patient, if they were, un, you know, started stable, but uh, waited too long, and and then unfortunately turned, uh, you know, to a critical patient, then you're talking about a different mode of transportation, including flying that patient out now at an expense to. Uh, you know, the family. And that's some of the things that we experience right now with the lack of ambulance providers and uh, resources is that where a natural transport could be from uh, a rig to the receiving facility, it's now a helicopter ride, which you and I both know, Bobby, that that is eight, 10 times the cost. Uh, and that gets passed right along to the consumer. So mm -hmm. that is the concern about rural areas, obviously. Uh, and the challenge, you know, is is upon us right now to try to correct that. So I, I look forward to the discussion about how you feel we're going to do that here in just a few minutes. Well, and that kind of begs the question, too, especially when it comes to, you know, private EMS agencies. Is that a is that an opera? I mean, it's a clearly a gap in the market. Is that an opportunity in the market that more um, that, that potentially that could draw more people into creating a company that can service more of those transfer needs that may not be struggling with the issue of we also have to have a rig available for 911 but then you're are you robbing Peter to pay Paul when it comes to the available talent out there exactly and that's exactly what happens um, here's here's where we're at a little bit more of an advantage on the private side is we have the ability to pay more than most of the you know the townships the volunteer mm -hmm. departments that sort of mm -hmm. thing so it's. It used to be years ago, or not even years ago, maybe even as early as 10 years ago, um, people who got into the business wanted to get into the business to really do fire service. Now we're starting to see a little bit more of a flip to where, you know, it's, you know, people not being able to afford to make, you know, 
18, $19 an hour as a paramedic working 40 hours a week. Yeah. So we have the ability to pay, to, to pay more. So we do, we are seeing, you know, uh, paramedics who, you know, will do private, you know, work or who maybe mm -hmm. does fire for a while, can't sustain that and then move on to the private side. Mm -hmm. So for you running an EMS company, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face when operating in a rural community versus somewhere urban or suburban? So uh, one of so one of the business units that I managed was um, in Zanesville, Ohio, for um, community ambulance service, which um, was one of our joint venture partnerships. And uh, Zanesville is probably about fifty miles, um, I want to say, east of um, of Columbus. Small community, um, Genesis Community Hospital. Small hospital kind of reminds me a lot of Hillsdale. Um, they community ambulance service also, you know, did the 911 service for the city of Zanesville. So that kind of helped, um, you know, not only did they do the emergency side, but they also did the non-emergency side of things. Uh, that was probably one of the only business units that I managed um, that had an emergency um, contract within the city. So we had the challenge of finding EMS uh, people to do the emergency work for the city and also then, you know, trying to strategically, you know, break them up from doing emergencies and non-emergencies um, and, and, and getting staffed that way. And we had, we had the challenge uh, with that because there were a lot of townships in the area um, you know, people working predominantly for the townships, but we also had a lot of those people who moonlighted, you know, for us um, over a cast. So, um, so for us, we had double the challenge of servicing the hospital and also servicing the residents of Zanesville as well. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think, you know, we paid as a private, although we were a nonprofit, we paid a little bit more um, than you know, these, these townships did, and we were able to attract, you know, some employees. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, there, when you say that a, a paramedic can make, let's say 18 to $20 an hour or, uh, you know, an EMT. Well, yeah. Can you explain the difference between yeah. those two? Cause they're not the same. Right. Let's and talk, I think that's a huge misconception. It is. That's what I want to talk about because I've heard people say, you know, ambulance driver, EMT, medic, right. uh, trans ambulance transport. driver just implies like literally sitting behind the wheel, which is not even, right. that's probably the smallest you hear part that, of the job. But you hear oh, that. you totally do. You know, you, totally you hear do. like, oh, the ambulance driver didn't. So talk to us about the divisions within your service. Sure. Um, so there, in, in, in Ohio, um, there are three levels. Um, there's an EMT basic, which is your, your, you know, your lower level, um, EMS provider, which can do, you know, all the basic stuff, um, can provide oxygen, can, you know, bandage patients, basically just your basic life support, uh, skills that they can provide. Then you have what's called an advanced EMT that's my level that's my level currently and we can do a little bit more you know we can intubate a patient we can push certain medications um you know we 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 can do a little bit more but not as much as the next level of a paramedic whereas a paramedic um does more cardiac related uh skills and treatments um mm. you know we on the advanced side i can do you know um pain management i can do that sort of thing but 
on the paramedic side, it's far more advanced when it comes to your airway management, you know, being able to RSI patients, being able to push certain cardiac medications in a cardiac arrest. On my level, the only thing I can do in a cardiac arrest is basically just push fluids, intubate, and do CPR to the hospital, whereas paramedic can push multiple cardiac meds, um, infusion medications, uh, and sustain, you know, um, patient's rhythm uh, to the hospital. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the difference between the three. Okay. And then, and then let's talk a little bit about compensation, just because we have put that out there. Um, I, I did have an EMS uh, director tell me once that, well, JJ, it's really not just 18 an hour. In fact, I have paramedics that make six figures. Um, you know, they pick up uh, 24 hour shifts, they pick up, you know, two or three extra shifts a week. Um, is that, I mean, can that, and I'm not saying that's the wonderful appeal, but could that be the appeal that there is, you're not just stuck at $40,000 a year, that there is potential for picking up additional shifts. Does that exist in your market? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really does. Um, you know, for instance, so like, so the fire, so the fire service or the whoever's doing the nine one one, you know, they they sometimes will get some sort of um, you know compensation from. Um, obviously, they get compensation from um, you know the city or town. Sometimes they get additional resources for training or whatever equipment from different levies that they may particularly get. Um, but at the end of the day. You know, when you're doing on the 911 side, your reimbursements aren't always the greatest because you have your 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 different payer mixes. Like you mentioned earlier, JJ, you have your you know uh, patients who don't have insurance. You have your your Medicaid patients, which our reimbursements our reimbursement for Medicaid is is very low. Um, so that's where um, you know these and it's readiness for service. You know. Uh, your your 911 truck may end up doing two or three transports in a 24 hours, so they're sitting for say 20 hours a day. You know mm. that's that's where they struggle to um, you know to really um, be able to compensate their their staff is because frankly they don't get a ton of money from you know the reimbursements and then right. whatever you know they get from you know from the community. Um, Right. So it's the opportunity cost when the rig is not being used. However, it has to be ready to go when it is needed. So it's not like you can just shut down for a certain period of time and not have the cost of that availability. Right. right. And the uncertainty of what you're going to get for volume and revenue and that sort of thing. So it's not so much, you know, it's not so much the, um, you know, the volume. It's it's you know, it's the type of reimbursement that you may or may not get yeah. from that particular transport. Yeah. Right. So similar to what we face on, on the on hospital the, side, yeah, the, the, the biggest, side. you know, bottom line issue, quite frankly, is the, the, the level of reimbursement. What are we being paid to provide the care that we provide compared to what does it cost us to do that? Now, if I can add to that on the hospital side, right, for the, for the transfer side, we do get reimbursed, you know, more depending upon the type of transport. You know, if it's mm-hmm. a critical care transport, we get a certain amount more money. Now, for the most part, you know, still, you know, the rates are low for, you know, for Medicaid. We're still going to get what we get. Medicare, a little bit higher, uh, which is a little bit better of reimbursement. Your private insurances, mm-hmm. for the most part, and where where we struggle and 
Where we struggle with the private insurances compared to years ago is there's a lot more responsibility now on the patient to pay out of pocket between deductibles and um, you know out of pocket expenses. And then obviously when they hit their deductibles, then stuff starts to kick in. But yeah. maybe maybe transportation is not covered. So, you know, what is an $800 trip we bill to the insurance gets denied because it's the patient's responsibility, then right. we have to chase the patient to collect whether, you know. And you know, really, by the way, there are concierge services out there where you can almost purchase a la carte services from uh, private ambulance companies, like you can get on an annual uh, list if you pay X amount of dollars. Does that exist out there? Um, yeah, there are there are certain um, you know for instance in Massachusetts when I was working for Cataldo Ambulance, we had um, uh, you know we worked with Cambridge Health Alliance, which they they were you know Cambridge Health Alliance was in um, Everett, Massachusetts. It was a health, smaller health system, um, faced similar challenges to what you guys are facing there. They reached out. We were the provider for the city, the nine one provider. They reached out and they wanted a dedicated ambulance. So. Uh, you know, we basically uh, put together, you know, an agreement um, for, for the hospital and we dedicated a, uh, you know, we had dedicated resources in the city for the 911, but then the hospital had a dedicated ambulance 24 hours a day for their transfers going to Boston. Mm -hmm. So there is, there is a need, you know, or, or there are some type, you know, and then again, you mm -hmm. can, you can pick the type of service you want, ALS, BLS, the time of day, yeah. that sort of thing. Let's talk about, uh, as we wrap up here today, let's talk about growth strategy. And, you know, I guess if you want to cast a picture uh, of what your organization and agency is going to look like into the future, um, what, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your vision uh, is for your company? And, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the depth of that question. What is the impact that you hope to have in communities in the future uh, across various states, perhaps? Uh, and then in that process, talk to us a little bit about your long-term and short-term goals. Okay. Um, so if I, I can, so really f for us, we have to adapt in order for us to, to, to be successful and, and, remain here. We have to adapt to the way employees want to be treated today versus, you know, when I got into the business 25 years ago. When I got in the business, you know, um, it, you know, we had better insurance at the time, you know, for less money. Um, you know, today it seems like employees want more time off and they don't really care about, you know, because we have a lot of younger employees, they don't really care about the insurance. It's folks my age that you know, really care about the insurance yeah. and the costs. Whereas, you know, your typical 21 to 30 year old care more about an hourly yeah. wage. So we have, and, and time off. So, you know, we have, so what we do is we adapt to that currently. Um, you know, we, we have a, you know, a very high deductible insurance plan, which we have very low premium costs. So this way, you know, we can adapt to the younger employee who, um, you know, doesn't necessarily care about the Cadillac plan of an insurance policy that allows us to then increase, you know, our hourly rate for employees, um, so that's how we're able to attract. We also offer, you know, 
incentives. We, in, we incentivize employees for, for call mm-hmm. volume. We incentivize employees for working weekends. You know, we do a weekend shift differential, which is like $4 more an hour. So we're adapting more to the employee to get to entice them to want to pick up the shifts that we have open. That said, um, you know, we also have a very generous PTO policy. You know, employees, you know, want, um, you know, employees want as much time off as possible. So we, you know, we have a pretty strong PTO policy and we run, you know, predominantly our shifts are three, you know, three 12 hour shifts. So we give employees plenty of time off, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to be able to, um, you know, to be able to have that work-life balance that they want now. And the question you asked earlier about people wanting to, you know, work overtime, honestly, we have some people that want to do it, but, but they don't. when I first got in the business, they don't. I was working 72 to 80 hours a week. Yeah. Now it's hard yeah. to find people to do this. that. And that's everywhere. Nursing, law enforcement. It's, right. It's everywhere. Right. They for, want the work-life balance. Worse, right? yeah, I know. You know? Yeah. That's, there's always that balance, that there catch-22. And it, I, it depends on the person, right? Sometimes there are those people who just, that's just what they like to do. Um, but then you also, you know, the industry, I think in the past, or I say industry, meaning healthcare in general, not EMS, also gets criticism for, you know, you shouldn't be incentivizing your employees to work crazy number of hours. So it certainly is that balance. And I think sometimes the market overcorrects itself a little bit. So maybe it'll, it'll come back somewhere to, to the middle eventually. But it sounds like you guys are really kind of fitting your puzzle piece into the puzzle piece of your employees and focusing on what they're interested in. And that's how you're going to sustain long term um, mm-hmm. because it's all about the employees and you have to adapt to the shortage. If you don't, you're just, you know, you, you're not going to find anybody, yeah. you know. So that's what we've been doing to try to weather the storm. And hopefully, you know, and, 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 uh, and if I can add this too, the, I kind of wish National Registry, which is kind of our governing body, would work closer with say the military, right? We have a ton of military people who come out of the military, medics, right? They're, they're yes. treating people, they're doing IVs, they're intubating people, they're pushing certain medications. They come out of the military as medics, as a basic EMT. So then they force them, yeah, so then they force them to now have to go back to the paramedic program, pretty yeah. much relearn everything that they already learned. There yeah. should be, you need to have more bridge programs between these you know, again, military is a great example. I agree. You have these medics who know what they're doing. They should be able to come out at the very least an advanced DMT. I can do just as much as a military medic, so they should be able to come out and do what I can do. So I kind of, you know, I would love to run for politics someday to really advocate <laughs> for EMS, but, um, you know, I think it's going to take a formal, former EMS person to yeah. become president to be able to, you know, exactly. what we need to accomplish. Exactly. Right. Right. Well, it sounds like an opportunity for us as hospital on the hospital side to join hands with EMS to do some of this advocacy work because you do hear a lot of, you know, I listened to a congressional hearing um, uh, several months ago. That was about challenges in rural health care. And one of the things someone talked about was the EMS shortage, but it was only coming from the hospital perspective instead of bringing the hospitals and the EMS providers directly together to talk about this issue. Because it seems to me that while there may be a prestige in certain healthcare careers, for whatever reason, paramedics have not 
kept pace with nursing, for example, and the way people think about the career and appreciate that role so that people aren't growing up thinking, oh, I want to be a paramedic when I grow up. It's I want to be a nurse or a doctor. Right. So that I think there's a real opportunity to to do more from a recruitment perspective from even, you know, very young ages to, to change the perception, not even change the perception, but to create more of a perception. Because I think for a lot of people, it's not that there's a bad perception. It's just not top of mind. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You bring up you bring up a great point. And I think if if, if your if your health system and your paramedics can work together uh, and the health system them does what they can to include the paramedics in certain things that too is is, is something huge that um, you know that we like to see on the paramedic side you know is being is have a progressive medical director or yeah. um, medical control authority that is very hands-on with the EMS agency because to me the partnership between the hospital and your EMS provider has to be Critical. a very very good uh, relationship in order to succeed on both ends. That's critical. So, so Bobby, do you see a growth in your future then for expanding into new areas? Is that something that is of interest to you and, and something you look forward to? I mean, you're young. You're a young guy, and uh, I'm sure that uh, the business, as well as it's doing, that you're your type of guy, you just don't sit still. So I can see you branching out into many areas, but is that on your growth strategy? You're just going to kind of keep things where they are. No, I, I, I think in order to be a successful business, you need to grow. Um, I, coming from my experience with Beaumont and managing multiple business units in multiple states, I would love to be able to have the opportunity to um, venture back up, you know, into into another market like Michigan, um, you know, somewhere that's close, far enough away but close enough for me to be able to handle. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I definitely look forward to growth and, um, you know, the ability right. to service other areas. Yeah, and we, we uh, obviously, I've leaned on you quite a bit for information as we looked at starting uh, our own ambulance company. Unfortunately, it's just cost prohibitive for our hospital. And I'm sure you're finding that across the country, hospitals that are divesting their ambulance programs. I am hearing that. Uh, and I think it's just because the reimbursement is equally lousier, if not worse, than what they're facing even on the inpatient side or for specialty care. Well, and you know, you and I, and again, I do, I do see that because I saw it with Beaumont just a couple of years ago, and right. you know, I, I do, I do see that you know that health systems understand the challenges associated with it, and I think the health systems are just too busy to have to deal with that on not only the hospital side of things, but also the EMS side of things. So if you can bring somebody in who, you know, knows EMS and can kind of adapt to those challenges, I think it would just make your, you know, your lives a lot easier um, mm -hmm. because having that partnership and someone that you can lean on to me is, is far more superior than, than doing it yourself and having to worry about, you know, that added layer. Yeah. A lot of work ahead of you, Bobby, and, and certainly advocacy is one of them, uh, working with uh, state and federal legislative bodies uh, to try to look at the way that ambulance companies are being reimbursed, same thing we're doing on the hospital side. Also building a talent pipeline, 
again, what we're trying to work on as well, uh, encouraging children, uh, kids at an earlier age uh, in, in grade school and high school to appreciate and enter into the field of, of paramedic uh, EMT and saving lives. Uh, in restoring some of that nobility of that profession, uh, and then trying to meet the demands of the a very demanding workforce that wants work-life balance. Uh, and it's a tough, all, all, all of those things are tough to balance, Rachel. You got your work cut out for yeah, you. Yeah, I think if there's any anybody that does, it's rural CEOs and uh, ambulance company you know, directors and owners, because certainly the money, the payments, the payers are not paying in many cases to the cover the cost to deliver the service. And you find that especially in Medicaid, heavily, heavily Medicaid populated areas. So um, we could talk for hours and we're excited uh, for the work that you're doing to try to solve some of the national problems uh, by doing it right there in your own backyard in central Ohio. So thanks for joining us today. Um, we look forward to having you back again to hopefully share the good news, which is that the talent pipeline has been built uh, and that you're finding you know resources for rural communities like Hillsdale. So we want to thank you again for joining us today for your first time ever on Rural Health Rising. Thank you for having me, and I really enjoyed it. And before we close, we love to do a fun segment with each of our guests. Now, you're, you've had some experience in rural, obviously in Ohio and uh, back home, and so uh, Salem might have some rural parts, right? Uh, we want to know, what is your most rural experience or something that's unique to rural life uh, that you could just share with our listeners who may not be from the rural community? Sure. So I'm going to use, I'm going to utilize my time uh, as managing CAS, which was Community Ambulance Service in Zanesville, which was, like I said, probably my most rural uh, business unit that we managed. And I have to say, the work ethic of the employees on the rural side is far more superior than the people's um, work ethic in the on the urban side. Um, I could rely on people if we had shifts open and I needed these 911 shifts covered. I could count on a certain amount of people to, to, to step up and fill these shifts. So for me, um, you know, it was just the personalities of, of working with such hardworking individuals, um, which, you know, I wasn't really accustomed to in other areas. So um, to me, that was uh, very impressive and something that, you know, I still have some great relationship with some employees from um, that area today. So I'm very That's proud. Awesome. That's awesome. It's always great to be part of a small community, isn't it? Well, once again, thanks for joining us today. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. 